Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and ask us. The greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project Podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by Prost, Exercise for Prostate Cancer Incorporated, a not-for-profit charity set up in 2012 by myself. Dr. Joe Miller. If you want to know any more information about Prost, including our online service now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health. So, Prost. Where I want to call my home. So, stop for a second and listen. It's not silent at all. Today we're going. We're very excited to speak with Professor Susan Chambers, the Dean of Facu- the Dean of Faculty of Health at the University of Technology in Sydney. She's a health psychologist, and most excitingly, she's also a registered nurse. She has worked as a practitioner and a researcher in the area of cancer for over thirty years. Um, and she has also written an amazing book called Facing the Tiger, which is for men and their loved ones diagnosed with prostate cancer. Joe and I both recommend this book to our clients on a regular basis, and so we are very excited to be speaking to Suzanne today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's so nice to talk to you both. So you can start, Jojo. Well, Suzanne and I, we go back um, to bumping into one another. I'm trying to work it out, but I think it was about 2012 um, when we met up with Peter Dornan in uh, Brisbane, and he was part of the Prostate Cancer Network in Queensland, which then evolved, I believe, into joining up with the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia. So we've personally met a number of times now, and I was absolutely delighted um, to have the opportunity to meet you again in 2020, just before the COVID um, epidemic basically hit when we had a, a whole psychology review day with the Prostate Cancer Foundation Australia. So Suzanne and I have crossed paths many times and um, it's wonderful to connect with you today. Now, Suzanne, could you give us a little bit of information about how you entered the psychology of cancer as your preferred field of expertise? Sure. Well, almost by accident, but uh, so I was a registered nurse and I was doing my psychology training at the same time as I was working as a nurse in intensive care units. And I decided I wanted to get involved in community work. So I ended up working at the Cancer Council Queensland in Queensland, where my job was to deliver support services to people with all sorts of cancers. And through that work, I came across Peter Dornan, and learned of the challenges that men with prostate cancer face. And at that time, which would have been in, I'm just thinking back the mid to late 90s, nobody was really doing any work even internationally in this area. So it just was um, asking for someone to get involved. And so I did. And so 
I started working very closely with Peter and his prostate cancer support network, got to know the groups across the country, and then um, did a number of, did many, many projects looking at improving information and support for men and their partners um, over decades, really. Okay, so <laughs> the, the, the actual uh, main thing we wanted to discuss today, Suzanne, was the book that you've released called Facing the Tiger. It's just had its second edition. So this is a resource that is available to men, and we're going to basically focus a lot of our discussion today on this book because through our Penis Project podcast the education process is really what we're trying to share more broadly because as you're familiar it's really hard to gain access to the thousands of men in need because you know people like us we're um, tied up in clinics and we can only see a certain number of people a day so we really want to let guys know and their partners about the many resources available that can they can pick up in their own time and, and lounge rooms at any any moment that's convenient to them so can you tell us about how the first edition published in 2013 came into being sure so I was um, in Tamworth at a prostate cancer support group leadership meeting of um, New South Wales regional support groups and I was talking to the leaders and said to them what were thing what could I do to imp- you know myself personally other than my work to improve things, to help them. Should I train health professionals more? What should I be doing? And and they asked me to write them a book uh, because I had been running a lot of support group meetings, a lot of educational programs, working with men and their families, but there was nothing really written down that, as you say, it's hard for people to get access to things. And so I took it upon myself to write a book which I wrote over my kitchen table over a couple of months. Yeah. Every Saturday morning, I was not allowed to have a coffee or the newspaper until <laughs> I And while I was doing it, I sat there and imagined that I was talking to a man or his partner and what I would say to them so that each chapter in the book is uh, what I've learned over the years from working with men and from listening to them and from listening to their partners and said in normal down-to-earth language, with exercises and activities to do that I knew from my experience there's a chance men might do. Um, Then I interviewed uh, men from all over the country and integrated uh, personal stories into that book. So it was an attempt to communicate more widely what men can do to help themselves because the diagnosis of cancer is a major life stress for anyone. It's a threat to your sense of self, to your hopes for the future, to your relationships. And knowing that up front and expecting that this will be psychologically or emotionally challenging is really useful information that men often don't get. And I think I would throw in there that we know that, uh, you know, we live in a society where there are strong expectations from men to be stoic and self-reliant. And and none of those things are bad things, but they can mean that you can end up a bit isolated um, and lacking in support. So it was trying to write a book in a style that men would find engaging and useful and their partners as well. So, so And it's written so that if you pick that book up, you can uh, just read the chapters that are relevant to whatever you're facing. You don't have to read the whole thing um, because it might not be important for you. The reason, and I would add the author royalties for the book, go to the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia to support um, research. So um, the personal gain that I get from the book is a satisfaction 
of seeing it be useful in the field. And I use it myself in my own practice when I'm working with men with prostate cancer in their families. It's super handy for me to have because yeah. I can give them the book and I can go chapter six before we sit meet again. Yeah. I need you to read chapter six and then I've, come back. So you do that too, Melissa? I was going to say I've found it because I've read the book and also the podcast, I find exactly that. Like I'll go, oh, that's right, in this page on this book is story that you'll really identify with or listen to chapter four uh, you know episode four of our podcast because that guy is you know will resonate with you and I just think that's so great and the thing I just wanted to say that I love about the book is that it is written in plain language because I feel like people just get totally overwhelmed with very medical health professional speak and I just think it's great to be able to give them a couple of resources that is just in what they would understand you know, just simple yeah, things and- like sometimes you say, I say the word vasodilation to a man and he looks at me blankly and I think, oh, I need to explain what that is in real language. So, yeah. That's exactly right. And I think the other thing that happens in psychology is, you know, if you buy the average psychology self-help book, I'm going to get into so much trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> you often see these complicated worksheets And I look at them and I go, I wouldn't do that. So why do I expect anyone else to do it? So when I was doing the worksheets, I really went just in my head, just go for the guts of it. What are the basic things that might be helpful to increase the chances that someone would actually do them? The reason why I revised it in 2020 was, um, first of all, the stats in the book, they were a bit out of date now. Um, Plus there was... um, some areas of the book where I thought some more examples and some more detail would be helpful. I um, had consulted a support group for gay men with prostate cancer and said to them, how can I make this more meaningful for you? And they said they would like their personal stories included. So I did some, did more interviews with gay men about their experiences. And I think it, that's really added to the depth of the book. Absolutely. And then, really there. Mm. Yeah, it was really needed and so, so pleased cool. that they Shine a Light support group in Sydney helped me with that. They were amazing. And and the other thing was I wanted to add a chapter for men or their partners who feel like they're stuck. So it was very cognitive behavioural in the approach, but that doesn't always work. And so I wanted to add a chapter that says if you feel stuck and you feel like the narrative you have about your life is just not working for you right now, here are some strategies that you can use to rethink that. And um, and I know that in my practice I find that really useful, particularly for men who are a little bit down the track and um, are going, you know, I kind of knew this was going to happen and this is going what it was going to be like, but <clears throat> I just can't seem to accept it. So it's a chapter about how you can learn to live with what has changed and then pivot your attention to what you can change yourself in the future to be doing things and living in a way that is closer to your values. Mm. I think that's a really important addition actually, Suzanne, because I've found now that I personally, having been involved with looking after patients for 15 years, there'll be many situations now arising where I see almost the second wave of patients coming back. So they may have undergone a radical prostatectomy and had disease-free PSA readings for seven or eight years, and then their whole situation changes and they need, you know, further treatment. And then they've got things like radiation side effects that were never a part of their initial time and they get stuck, as you say. So that chapter 10 in your book 
uh, around um, getting unstuck, I think is a uh, really important thing because as we know, as prostate cancer treatments have become more effective, then the survivorship has actually become more of the focus. So men are living longer after treatment and uh, yeah, many, many, many changes might ensue as a result of that. So thank you for adding that um, into your new edition. Speaking of the exercises that you've got in the book, like I just love the bit where you ask them to write a journal. I often recommend that. I think that's really great. And I've got an amazing amount of patients who actually write poetry. A guy sent me a poem on Friday that was just amazing. And I'm going to interview him, hopefully, Joe and I will down the track and he can tell us about why he wrote that poem. But I was really interested to also read about your attitude to mindfulness. And you did that research study on mindfulness in prostate cancer. And I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit to that, because I feel like mindfulness is such a trendy kind of thing that everyone just sort of banters around a bit. And it doesn't mean a whole lot, especially to your average guy. Yeah, so tricky, but good question, Melissa. (laughs) (laughs) So I did a study, yeah, a number of years ago, and um, it was on mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So for people who were listening, cognitive behavioural therapy really is just something that a talking therapy psychologists do where they get you to reflect on and kind of analyse your thinking patterns to work out whether the way you're thinking about something is helpful to you Um, and then looking at shifting that thinking if it's not helpful because uh, often we do catastrophic thinking, you know, oh, no, I know things are going to go wrong or black and white thinking, it's got to be this way or it's just no good at all. So there's a there's a very common, and this, these aren't pathological, it's just normal. We all do it. You know, you, you go into the car park, you can't see your car. Is your immediate thought someone's stolen it or is it, oh, I just got out of the lift on the wrong floor? Mm-hmm. You know, there's all sorts mm-hmm. of ways that our mind can play tricks on us, but that ha- what we think connects to how we feel. So it's understanding that thought-feeling connection and looking at how you can alter your thinking potentially to help you feel better. And then the behavioural part of it is looking at what behaviours you're doing and are they helping you or hindering you and looking at whether you can change those. The limitation of straight cognitive approaches is that um, sometimes on simple things it can work really well, but sometimes pushing, if, if, if if you start to kind of be pushing down your thoughts and avoiding them, you can make them stronger and hurt you more if that, um, and people will, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I try not to think this way, but the thought keeps coming and popping into my mind. And then I push it down and I try and compartmentalize it, but it keeps bursting through. Mm. And I particularly find with men, they often talk about, oh, I'll just wall it off. Um, now, walling it off can work, but it doesn't always work. And sometimes it can make the, the thinking worse. So that's a standard approach. But mindfulness is different. Mindfulness says, and it comes from religion, comes from the Buddhist religion. It's part of meditative practices. And a mindfulness technique is it's a combination. I'm really going to simplify this, but it's first of all about moment-to-moment awareness. So it's not running ahead into the future or thinking about the past. It's going right now, where am I? What's around me? What is happening? And paying attention to the present. Then when it's applied in a cognitive therapy rather than trying to change the negative thoughts, 
you work on trying to understand maybe where these things came from and then try and stop the direct connection between your thoughts and your feelings. So kind of think, seeing, you know, for an example, I tend to think this way because of the way I grew up and the way my parents raised me and that's okay, but I'm that's a passenger in the car of my journey in life, but it's not going to have its hands on the steering wheel. So the idea is kind of to try and detoxify that thought um, not try and push it down and just look at it with curiosity. Well, there it is again, you know, Except that it. old chestnut yeah. that is sitting there. And so that you um, start to get less reactive and start to feel better. Now, there are different sorts of mindfulness. It gets tied in with various sorts of things. And at the time I was working with a lot of clinical psychs who were really interested in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and the idea that we should try this out potentially with men who had really advanced disease and were in that really difficult situation. So I was able to do a pilot and the pilot worked really well. And then we got funding to do a big trial. But what we found in the trial was that it didn't make any difference, um, any positive difference, which was really curious to us because I had great mindfulness interventionists. It's a beautifully done trial, I had the best people on it. And um, when I looked at the data in detail, and you probably can't really tell this from reading the paper that we wrote, because they always make you cut all the interesting bits out. Yeah, but yeah, it seems to me that what we had done with this was we had been able to get men to be more self-aware, but they actually hadn't really been able to learn to detoxify from the thought. Um, but that didn't come out in worse outcomes. So you are quite right when you say mindfulness has gotten really trendy and it's really annoying. I mean, I was in the supermarket the other day and my husband had to stop me from my, buying a mindfulness puzzle book because I just... <laughs> <laughs> on your supermarket shelf and said the Kit Kat. You know, what on earth is this? And he's going, put it back, put it back. You can't take a picture of that and give it in a presentation and, and say, what is this? So it's gotten very trendy. It's applied in lots of situations where it doesn't, have any data behind it. Um, what I tend to do in my practice now, I think there's a place for it, but it's it's horses for courses. So uh, what we know is in women with breast cancer, there have been studies that have shown, it's been done in the US, that if you put women into a trial and they like mindfulness and they wanted mindfulness and they get mindfulness, then they do better. So that kind of says to you that if you that approach warms to your heart, and it's something that you feel you want to do, then you probably get some benefit out of that. But if it just seems too weird to you and you don't want to do it, then don't do it. It's not a panacea for everything. So I um, don't use it a lot with men. Um, I use what I, in its pure form, what I do tend to use is I talk to people about the idea of trying just to be, stick more to the present moment because worrying about the future doesn't change the future and ruminating about the past doesn't and nothing changes the past. Mm. Um, to stick more to the present and to, when you have those worrying thoughts, try to just see them as thoughts, you know, and notice them and think of the metaphor of their passengers in the car, but they don't have the hand on the steering wheel. And Suzanne, let's just um, bridge that to one of the chapters in your book, uh, Chapter 8, De-Stressing. 
how to look after yourself and keep well. Because as you just mentioned, um, you probably don't particularly use a lot of mindfulness with men. I actually teach yoga to men and I have to do that quite differently. Um, it's, it's a much more physical approach, much more action oriented and my language is quite different. So what do you find does work for men in your broad experience in, in the de-stressing models? Well, exactly what you've said is perfect. I am a big believer in exercise and um, I think a physical yoga is just a fabulous idea if people can do that. So completely applaud that. And actually, I'll have to revise the book now, right? (laughs) I'll help you write a little chapter on that. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think that's brilliant because, of course, yoga does that. It brings you into the present moment. It's a meditative practice in itself, but it doesn't look like one. And yoga is really tough. I tried yoga a few times and it's too hard for me. <laughs> um, ex- exercise with it, with where you've got a properly prescribed exercise program that includes resistance training as well as aerobic is super important. And we know studies show us that improves mood. Um, some And it, it's a generalisation to say, oh, mindfulness isn't okay for men because some men love it, you know, and some men really get into meditation and really like it. It's It's working out with the person what works for them, you know, what is um, what is the core issue that's bothering them at the moment? Can we problem solve some of that? Are there actions that you can take? Can we try and look at how you're thinking about it? Can we work on that? Do we just need to acknowledge it and spend some time talking about how hard this is and validating that feeling? I think the other thing I would throw in is that men are often, and so are women, people are tough on themselves. So a bit of self-kindness and a bit of self-compassion goes a long way. So trying to get um, at what's the core issue driving that. I mean, I have a, there's a scale I developed in my research some years ago called the masculinity and chronic disease inventory that has a list of items that reflect masculine values, which are, you know, it's not a labeling thing. They're not bad. They're not good. They just are. Some of them are quite good actually. Do you mind just saying the name of that again, Mm. Suzanne, because I've actually not come across that personally. And we'll put it in. So the it's, the, it's, it's called the MCDI, the Masculinity and Chronic Disease Inventory. It's freely available. It's on um, the UTS website and it's free to use. Um, and so it's a tool that people can use in research and we've validated it with men with prostate cancer and also men with chronic disease. But what I sometimes do in my practice, if I have a man who's going, you know, I still feel awful and I, I, I can't understand why, Sometimes I'll give them the scale, not because I'm doing it as a test, but I'll say, I want you to take this away and just fill it out because it might help you identify which masculine values are most important to you. And then what you might be able to see is why, why, how prostate cancer may have impacted on that value and that that may be one of the things that is driving your distress. So um, it's just... All of these things are just tools to help people build their own understanding of their current situation and then from that understanding to build a plan for what they might be able to do to help themselves. Excellent. And and for um, clinicians who might listen to the podcast, you also validated um, another questionnaire, the Prostate Cancer Distress Thermometer in 2014. Do you mind telling us a little bit about that? Because I've actually found that really useful as a quick uh, summary in my uh, clinical practice. 
it's a great thing. So, so I didn't invent it. Um, the distress thermometer was first invented at Memorial Sloan Kettering in the US by Jimmy Holland and Andy Roth. Jimmy's since died. She was amazing. She was the, you know, mother of psycho-oncology really, created the discipline. And so it's just a single item that says on a scale of zero to 10, where zero was no distress at all and 10 was extreme distress, what number would you be? And what we know from the research, well, our research really validated this, was that for men with prostate cancer, if they're four or above, then there is a um, good chance they're suffering from some level of depression or anxiety. So it's a screening tool. It's not a diagnostic tool because some people, it's very state-like in the sense that if you've just had a really bad day, you'll probably do a higher number, but tomorrow you might not be so high. Um, But as a clinician, you use it as a flag to say to yourself, okay, I need to watch out. So what I do in my practice, if well, actually what I, t- I tend to use a bigger screening tool because I can, because I'm a psychologist and that's what I do. And I have some short measures of anxiety and depression. And I find it helps people to know this because I can say to a guy or a woman, here's where you are on the test. This is not surprising because of the situation you're in, or I'm a little worried about this. Let's keep an eye on that and let's track that through as we spend time together to make sure I'm aware of just how you're feeling. Um, So I do talk about the distress thermometer in the book this time. I didn't do that last time. And just it's there because you can test yourself. You know, you can say, am I consistently four or above? And if I am, I probably should let my GP know or, you know, talk to my nurse or let someone know that, hey, you know, I'm not tracking as well as I want to. And um, when I checked myself on the distress thermometer, this was my number. So it's really easy to do. That's a great Um, idea. Sorry, can you use that like once a month or something like you do with a DAS score? Like I've been getting patients to DAS score. So you could use this. It's much easier, I assume. And, yeah, that's Yeah, it's really easy. So you could definitely use it once a month. What you don't want to do is start hysterically checking yourself, you know, then that defeats the purpose. So, um. It's just a little reflective thing someone can do. Um, and in so when I'm seeing clients, I might see them, if I'm seeing them every week, I don't check this every week, generally speaking, unless I'm thinking they're really distressed. I might do it at the beginning and I might do it at the end of our sessions or I might do it in the middle if I'm a little concerned that they're not tracking as well as they need to. Um, and then if they're, if someone's, very high like if you're seven above then you really got to get to your doctor you know so it's um it's just a useful tool and it's something that is meant to happen in general practice and we'll include uh that as a link in our podcast in our show notes as well because you know for me as a physiotherapist um certainly i want to be able to screen patients so that i can then forward them on to people like you via their gp Mm -hmm. so there's a whole team approach to their care because uh there's only certain certain amount that you know we as our individual health professionals have expertise with so um, and then there's we've, we've developed a training program for it that's on UTS open so it's open access right. um, and so that training program is for nurses or allied health professionals or any health professional who wants Wonderful. to understand about it so um, you know that's that's there as well the um, the Distress screener can be downloaded from the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia website. And there's also a monograph that we wrote 
outlining what types of psychological care have good evidence for them and how you can develop up a, um, a care framework for your particular practice. So those are all free and they're on the those things are on the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia website and the, the educational online program is on the UTS Open website. I'll make sure we put all those in the Yeah, that's show wonderful. Notes. Can I just ask a question about treatment regret? Um, so you said something earlier about you made a comment that there's no point looking back because you can't change the past. And so the, the whole treatment regret thing, do you, how do you deal with that? And do you see many men with this? And is there any ways you can suggest guys who have it can deal with that? Yeah. So look, that's a really hard thing. Regret over any decision is a hard thing to come to terms with. Of course, what we hope is that before they have treatment, men will consider the different options that are available to them, weigh up the pros and cons, and then make a decision that's informed and consistent with their values. And there's advice in the book on how to use that approach for decision-making. Um, and of course, though we're all human, whatever process we use, if we choose something and the outcome is really good, we go, yay, that was a good decision. But then if we choose something and it doesn't work out the way we had hoped, we can feel regret. Um, so there's nothing wrong with feeling sad about something that didn't go the way that you would you would have hoped. And, and you can carry that feeling of regret and sadness with you without it necessarily negatively affecting you, but in a big way. But if it gets over, it's, if it starts to become overwhelming and gets filled with negative self-judgment or shame or blame, then that's just not useful. Um, that's just going to drive distress. So I think the way to deal with that, my suggestion would be, is to just talk it through with someone so you can get it out in the open. And then try and work to a point where you just say, you know what, every decision that you've made, you made at the time to your best ability with the information that was available to you. So self-blame and self-judgment and all those sorts of things are just not, they're not useful thoughts and approaches to have. Um, so, we, I mean, we all live with um, some element of sadness about different things, don't we? That's the common humanity. Common humanity is about um, life is full of um, things we might want to change, difficult experiences and pain, and we're not alone in that. Um, but it's how we, within that situation, about treating yourself with self-kindness and compassion um, and having a trying to work towards a balanced view of what has happened and then pivoting to look forward and to go given this is a situation I'm in right now and this is this is my my moment I have the opportunity moving forward to choose how I'm going to live moving forward um, which takes some bravery and some courage but also can be great you know so there are there are people who are able, who make a decision, they want to live differently or they just want to address different things or they want to work towards a sense of peace and calm within themselves that perhaps wasn't there before. So taking it as a moment um, to do that. I love the way you packed all that together, Suzanne. I, I also just love one particular little uh, section in your book which says you should feel very comfortable about getting a second opinion if you feel you want an alternative view. And many men I find feel very loyal to their surgeon or to their 
um, GP or even their physiotherapist and, and feel uncomfortable about potentially, you know, offending that particular person by getting a second opinion. But I felt very heartwarm that you raised that in your book in the chapter about decision making. And um, I think it really fits in nicely with a lot of the work that Melissa's doing as well. For example, today, she's just gone and watched some surgery done on a um, penile implant. I watched an artificial, uh, sorry, no, a sling and an artificial implant, which was fantastic. It's just nice when men are nervous about something that I can say, well, I've seen it and this is what happens. So we might, Um, Melissa and I might start at the beginning with patients and we I work on pelvic floor training and exercise and Melissa works on you know all the penile rehabilitation but then they might get to a point where you know they're two three years down the track after after their treatment and absolutely no sexual function but you know their particular urologist doesn't have a view on that so the second opinion concept do you mind commenting on that well it's really important you know people we all do this. I mean, I even know when my mother was um, very ill with cancer and um, I agonised over getting second opinions for her because I didn't want to make it worse, um, particularly when it was someone else I was caring for, which my partners might feel that. They might feel they really want their man to get a second opinion but be worried about what the impact of that might be. And, and you know, we worry that, oh, I'll upset the doctor. Well, you know, it's a doctor's job to look after you, quite frankly, and a good doctor knows that. And a good doctor will not mind you getting a second opinion. So if you're, you know, I'm just going to throw this out there. So if, you talk, if you're talking to your doctor and saying, I really feel like a second opinion, the appropriate response is absolutely let me help organise that for you. Um, and it's all part of making sure that you've looked at all the options and uh, you're getting what treatment suits you best. Um, I was talking to a patient about this recently and I was just saying, you know, seemed to me that the things you wanted in a doctor, you wanted them to be a good technician, right, because you want them Mm. to be really technically Mm. good at what they do. You want them to be research connected in some way because if there's a latest, greatest thing coming up, you want to know that he's going to, he or she is going to get that for you. But then what you also want is a doctor that communicates well with you and who you feel is the leader of your team. And you want all three pieces to go together. Um, So I just think it's useful for people to think of all of that because it it might be a time when when you're going through something and you think right now all I want is a technician and that's that's all I'm really after. But later on, you might find that you actually want the other sort. And that's always an opportunity to switch. I was just thinking while you were talking about that, I think that's great advice. But And I think it also doesn't just apply to doctors. Like I think as well, I've got an example recently where I have been working with a man for a year with his erectile dysfunction and we just weren't getting anywhere. And in the end, I got to the point where I thought, you know what, this is a real bloke's bloke. I think he would do better seeing a man rather than seeing me. And I think as health professionals, we also need to identify sometimes we're not a good fit for certain personalities. And, you know, I've referred him off to my mentor and he's doing much better with him. And I I think it's important we don't take that personally. And, you know, the same I'll often say to guys who have got physios that they love, but they haven't been doing great with them. And I'll say, go and see Joe. And they'll go, oh, but I don't want to offend my physio. And I'm like, you know, we all have our particular strengths and weaknesses and we have our personalities that click. And I just think in all areas, people shouldn't feel nervous to change. And that as health professionals, we shouldn't be offended really. 
Look, absolutely. And it's the same with psychologists too. Like a really important thing with psychologists is what we call the therapeutic alliance. You need to feel like the psychologist you're talking to gets you, understands you, and that you can, you know, have a free and um, a free and accepted relationship with them. And um, and so I always say to people, shop around if you need to, or if you go to a psychologist and it doesn't seem to be working for you, don't and you but you think you need some help, well try a different one mm. till you find one that you think is on your wavelength. Um, and also remembering, and I suppose in psychology, you know, people have different approaches, different theoretical approaches, different clinical approaches. It's important that the person is delivering to you the approach that works for your your life worldview, not just what they like to do. Yeah. Yeah, I really, yeah, that resonates quite strongly with me too. Um, I'm just going to read just from the acknowledgement sections of your book, your 2020 book. The motto of remembering that everyone is different still stands true. So another little section that you've discussed in the book is about research and that research is often based on trials that estimate what might not what might happen not will what will happen so basically the individual's experience might not necessarily be something that he values and every single patient I always say you are an individual your consonants outcomes and your sexual outcomes would be very different to the next blokes and I was really pleased to see that you highlighted that a couple of times what do you think Melissa on that yeah individually no, outcomes I definitely think that's right and diff- what's really important to one person isn't necessarily important to another is it so you need to individualize that yeah because even when I did my own research studies I used to you, know, you come up with the percentages and we came up with 74 percent of men will become dry and pad free at 12 weeks post-operatively with the pelvic floor muscle training but I always say to guys look you know you're you weren't in that study you weren't one of those percentages so your your story is 100% the only story I'm concerned about right now and let's work together on trying to get the best outcomes for you and uh, there's so many different factors that contribute to someone you know getting their continence sorted early or whatever it might be the experience of their surgeon or the type of treatment they had or their preparation time so I think it's really important for each each man and their partner to acknowledge the individuality of their own situation. Yeah that's right because and when you when you get given data about what happens, it's aggregate. So it's people's data clumped together. It tells you what happens to groups of people. It doesn't tell you what's going to happen to each individual. And so it's important to do exactly what you're saying, Joe. And then that also not measuring yourself up against other people or against other statistics. Those statistics are useful and important to give you a sense of what the picture looks like. But then your own individual journey is will vary on a whole range of different factors. Can I ask you a question? It's a little bit off topic, but could I ask you a question about, you talk about in your book, um, PSA-itis and how that's unhelpful term. And um, I hadn't heard it referred to that before, but I had heard it referred to PSA-anxiety. I, I coined that one for my patients. Yeah. yeah, but I thought... You know, it's something that we would often see is, you know, guys are doing really well and then they're due for their six-month PSA and it's just quite, you know, anxiety riding. And just wondering, like, what suggestions do you have around that? So first of all, just understanding that it's normal. Women who have breast cancer get really anxious when they're due for their 
mammogram checkup. Um, people with blood cancers get nervous when they're, you know, so it, it's normal because you get along in your life and you can push it to the back. You know, you, you're focused on other things, but when you're having a checkup for um, cancer status, that's anxiety producing. So understanding that it's anxiety producing and then looking at what are the strategies you can use just to get you through that. Cause it's often very short term, you know, you know, for most people, they'll be anxious when they're having the test, but once they get the test result, they're okay. You know, yep. and even if the test results, not what they were hoping, once they've got a plan, they can move through that. And there's always a plan to be had. So I talk to people about little strategies just to try and calm yourself down. So meditative things, deep breathing. Um, you may as well try and focus your attention elsewhere because you, you know you've got to have the test. It's coming up. You, you, so if you can try and focus on other things, try and stick to the present moment. When you're in the waiting room waiting, you can do deep breathing exercises just to try and physically calm yourself down. Just the same sort of stress management strategies that you would use um, for other issues, just focusing them around this. And, and that's where trying to um, not run ahead with catastrophic thinking and imagining the worst, which is where those cognitive strategies come into play, um, which might be challenging that thought um, and talking yourself through seeing that thought, the worrying about it as not realistic, or it might be just going, oh, there you go, My, I always... I'm going to, I always tend to feel more anxious when my test's coming up. That's why I'm feeling this way. And I'm just going to, you know, that's just going to carry that next to me, but I'm not going to let it run my life right now. So awareness, stress management strategies, and um, trying to be aware that it's the thought, of, that's the thought, not the fact that's driving the distress. And it's just in the end, that's a thought. Yeah, that's good. Can we just get you to say that one more time? Because I think that's probably a really good place to yeah, that was great. Um, kind of finish up. It's the thought. Yeah, so Not we treat fact. thoughts as if they are facts. You know, we if we start fantasizing, thinking this test is going to be bad and this is going to happen and then that's going to happen, we react emotionally to that as if that thought is a fact, but it's actually a thought. So we don't know what the fact is. Um, we'll find out in time. So if we can um, try and either balance that out, taking a balanced view by saying, you know what, I don't know what the result's going to be. It's very likely going to be a good result. If it's not the result I'm hoping for, the doctor will have a plan. I'm just going to stick myself to the moment right now and try not to run away with myself on this one. Um, that's kind of the way you talk yourself through that. Um, sometimes it's useful to get someone to help you with, but with the thought challenging, so sharing with someone close. Taking, taking someone else to do appointments with you as well. Mm. Yeah, getting someone to help you by acting as if they're your best friend who's going to talk you through this. Mm. Being your own best friend, of being, course. Yeah, is I was awesome. thinking mm. that too, just, you know, being kinder to yourself. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes that whole journaling of writing it down would be really effective in that because if you write down your thought, sometimes it might look you might be a bit more obvious that it's a thought rather than a fact. Yeah, that's yeah, a great that's a piece right. of advice. I really like that. Mm. Mm. Well, Suzanne, how can we gain access to your book, Facing the Tiger, the newest edition? So it's sold by Australian Academic Press. So you just, and it's now called, it's the, change the title. So don't, the Australian Academic Press will only sell you the up-to-date one, but 
There's some old versions still floating around at bookstores. So you don't want the old one. You want the new one. I think it's called A Guide to Prostate Cancer Survivorship for Men and Their Partners, and it was published in 2020. So you can get it on the Australian Academic Press website, and there is an e-version as well. So you can download And you can get it on my website. I've got a heap, a box of 50 of them I've been selling. haven't got that many left. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and ask you ask your doctor about it too. You know, if you're seeing a urologist, saying if you've got one in your practice, because the practice I work in, where I see patients, we give one to patients. So, you know, ask your doctor if he's got one handy that you can borrow. And can you get it from like the Prostate borrow. Cancer Foundation? You, I'm not sure. I'm not sure to be honest whether they um, they definitely recommend it as their resource, but I'm not sure if you can buy it there. But yeah. Well, Suzanne, I can't thank you enough for um, spending your time with us today. Your dog's dog, puppy, behaved herself quite quite nicely. So um, we didn't have any outside sulking. <laughs> thank you so much for being with us today and talking to us. It's very exciting to finally speak with you. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the great work you both do in supporting men with prostate cancer. I appreciate it. And they do too. Uh, Thank you so much. It's been there all of my life. Hi, this is Dr. Jo. Thank you so much for listening to our program today. And we're pleased to let you know that we will be having weekly podcasts, not fortnightly, as originally proposed. And this is because of the popularity of our podcast. We're getting so many emails, so many questions, and so much feedback, and Melissa and I greatly appreciate it. What we'd really love you to do is share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit, including any man in your life. Simply download off Spotify or subscribe to thepenisproject.org and then you'll get a weekly email of our newest releases. Also feel free to send us a review and this will greatly help in our ongoing ability to bring you new and fresh information as that's the way we build what comes next. We also have show notes attached and this gives a bit of a background into any additional resources or explanations of what we're talking about. Finally, it's my great pleasure to let you know that PROST The exercise program which sponsors our podcast is now available on a USB resource for any man diagnosed with prostate cancer, an exercise program. Clinicians can buy these as well as the everyday bloke. So feel free to check out prost.com.au. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Those dread dark days, I learned to value each and every one of those warm afternoons. Boys on their bikes Shooting stones at each other through the trees We tried to deny The going down of the sun We're just having too much fun